Richard Pryor is considered by many to be one of the greatest African-American comedians of all time. Here he is performing live in the early 1980s. I went to penitentiary, not me personally, I mean I went to do a film in penitentiary, and it was, I was up there six weeks, Arizona State Penitentiary. Oh man, it was strange because it's like 80% black people. And what's strange about that is that there are no black people in Arizona. I met one brother, his name was Jabo. He was doing a sentence, triple life. How in the f do you do triple life? I mean, I mean, if he die and come back, he got to go to penitentiary. Right? A few things about Richard Pryor. First, like many comedians, such as Dave Chappelle and others, his routine is firmly based in satire. So there's often this unsettling paradox that people, in this case a mostly white audience, are laughing at tragic realities. A fellow comedian once said, quote, For Richard, the line between comedy and tragedy is as fine as you can paint it. End quote. And Pryor definitely had his fair share of tragedy. Abandoned by his parents, raised in a brothel, physically and sexually abused, in and out of jail, struggles with drug addiction, and something that many people remember him for far more than his brilliance, lighting himself on fire while high on drugs. Some people hear a story like Pryor's and see a gifted man who endured a lifetime of trauma. Others see a black man on a trajectory they believe is somehow automatic or a sort of foregone conclusion. There's even a name for this trajectory. It's called the Cradle to Prison Pipeline. I'm Michael Joyce, host of the Health in All Matters podcast from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. And in this episode, we explore this pipeline and how it relates to race and health. I don't I love the phrase. Um, I don't love the terminology. It's not something that I necessarily use in my work. Dr. Rebecca Schlafer is an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School. She's a developmental child psychologist by training who researches the impact of incarceration on health, especially for incarcerated mothers. But I recognize that thinking about cradle to prison, I think, can be helpful, at least for the, for the lay public, to think about um, how someone may be at increased risk based on where they're born or where they live or the neighborhoods in which they're growing up in from the very beginnings of their lives. It's meant to be a catchy phrase that captures an appalling series of challenges that disproportionately affect black, indigenous, and other people of color who are also living in poverty, starting life with challenges like unsanitary or unsafe housing, inadequate or no health insurance, food insecurity, and parents who may be struggling with unemployment, drug use, or being arrested. Then, moving on to under-resourced and overcrowded schools, where kids of color can be expelled two to three times more often than white kids. And then, facing a higher risk of being either murdered before they start shaving or dating, or ending up in a criminal justice system where about two-thirds of those who are locked up are people of color. And so really from the get-go, there are uh, this constellation of risk factors that may 
put these kids at increased risk for having poor outcomes across the life course. And then you can't help but think about the stat that I regularly remind people of, that one in six Minnesota youth has experienced the incarceration of a parent. And that's staggering. And when we think about what it means to have a parent involved in the criminal justice system and what how that can systematically disadvantage folks, you know, both before the parent becomes incarcerated, but the challenges that families face post-incarceration in terms of access to housing, access to employment, access to health insurance, all the things that then potentially compromise their health as adults have impacts for child well-being and intergenerational patterns of health and well-being. You know, we're asking kids to learn and thrive and and pull themselves up by their bootstraps and have personal responsibility in conditions under which, you know, most white middle class people would never, ever, ever experience, let alone let their children go to. Well, I have no uh, hesitation injecting myself into that. As I said earlier, here I am, the, the proverbial middle class white male. I've never faced any of those issues, nor did any of my friends. And so none of those disruptions None of those bonds were broken. Everything was intact, and I had every possible chance to succeed. Right. And I'd be hard-pressed to think that you never did anything as a juvenile that wasn't risky or criminal or could have gotten you in trouble with the law. Oh, we flirted with the edge of that all the time and, and reveled in it. Right. Because because that's developmentally appropriate and, and adolescents take risks. And some adolescents are growing up in contexts in which they're allowed to take those risks and are safe to do so. Right. And then we have some kids who are growing up in contexts where those risks could compromise their health, their well-being, and they're in situations where the, the public's response to those is to treat them not as you know, typical adolescent risk-taking, but as, as criminals. Here's how the nonprofit group The Sentencing Project frames this issue. Overall, African Americans are more likely than white Americans to be arrested. Once arrested, they are more likely to be convicted. And once convicted, they are more likely to face stiff sentences. In short, it's an unequal system, no question. But what makes incarceration a public health issue? It's a question I pose to Dr. Schlafer. I think one of our biggest failures as a country has been this, this failure to recognize that jails and prisons are extensions of our communities. Um, the very people who are incarcerated in our jails and prisons are, were members of our community before they went to prison or jail, and they return to community. Right When you have large groups of individuals who are um, returning from prison, not able to find stable housing, what does that mean in terms of having um, high numbers of, of homeless people? Um, when we think about individuals who don't have access to preventive health services and they are gravely ill or you know, using the emergency department for services that might otherwise have been able to be addressed earlier on through prevention in primary care settings, we see folks who are then using the hospital system in a way that it was never intended, and that puts stress and strain on um, those hospital systems that have implications for everybody who's trying to use that system. And 
you know, the costs are rising for everyone, you know, even those of us with private good health insurance. And for those folks who don't have access to that, it's taxing the entire system. And when we consider that we are removing individuals from our community and not bringing them back in ways that they are healthier or our families are healthier, our communities are healthier, that to me makes it a public health problem. Kind of start to wonder like why is this called a healthcare system <laughs> is it a system and, and what is what goal is it trying to achieve tyler winkleman is a pediatrician and internist with hennepin healthcare in minneapolis part of the time he's researching poor health outcomes in this so-called pipeline most of the time he's trying to improve those outcomes for his patients in the hennepin county jail And certainly if the goal is to make sure that every community can have equal access to the same level of well-being, we're we're certainly far from that. Most of Dr. Winkleman's patients are not white, and most have not had consistent health care. But most do qualify for Medicaid, the health insurance program available to the roughly one out of five Americans with low income. But there's a problem. When you look at Medicaid policy, it systematically stacks the deck against people who are involved in the criminal justice system. And the the policy I'm referring to in particular is that once you enter a correctional facility, you can't use your Medicaid anymore. You're not allowed to. And so all of that care has to be paid for by the jail or prison. And so your, your Medicaid is shut off. In some cases, it's terminated. And then you have to reapply for the whole thing. This is, in my opinion, how systemic racism works. And that is that the policy is designed in a way that disproportionately impacts people with brown and black skin. And while perhaps at one point, the intent of the policy made sense, uh, clearly today it has a real impact on access to care for certain communities. The United States has an incarceration problem. The U.S. makes up only 4% of the world's population, but it accounts for nearly 25% of the world's incarcerated people. Once released from prison, the percentage of those who return to criminal behavior, called recidivism, ranges from about 60 to 80 percent. Complicating matters is a boom in privatized prisons across the country. There's money to be made, which means imprisoning people is essentially incentivized. So the system isn't just unequal, it's broken. But statistics are simply numbers. Let's add a face to them. Consider this. A black boy born while you listen to this podcast has a nearly one in three chance of going to prison in his lifetime. For a Latino boy, it's about one in six. For a white boy, it's roughly one in 23. I think one of the the most shocking numbers that that I've heard is that the Native American community makes up less than 1% of people in Minnesota. But when you look at who is today in the Minnesota women's prison, it is nearly a 
quarter of, of women in that prison are Native American. And that is just totally unacceptable. And then the other piece that on a more personal level really is shocking and disturbing to me is when I'm in clinic at the jail and talking to my patients about their health, the level of trauma that people have had to go through in their lives is just extraordinary. It is anything from childhood physical abuse, sexual abuse, to violence, either having witnessed a family member be murdered or have been shot or physically harmed themselves. It is one of these things that literally every clinic I have, I hear these stories and it just never stops being heartbreaking. In in our clinic, we're trying to do the best we can do to help them. But just knowing that it's a lifetime of trauma that has really never been addressed and, and, and that often, you know, we're the one of the first healthcare providers to ever even start to flush out sort of the impact that the trauma has had on their lives. I know that feeling all too well. I once worked as a physician with the uninsured, the homeless, the incarcerated, and a host of other untouchables, as much of society saw them and treated them. The operative word here being them, or other. Certainly not your neighbors, and certainly easy to ignore. Was it hard work? Absolutely. Was it harder than what my patients were going through? Absolutely not. And it was really easy to get discouraged. So I asked Dr. Winkleman about that, about facing the sheer scope of the problem day after day. To say that there's multiple broken systems, it leaves me with a overwhelming sense of how can we ever fix it. But I'd also say that, you know, as academics and as thinkers, we also spend a lot of time thinking about everything that doesn't work. And I think we spend less time looking for weight, things that are working and how do we make, how do we build on those? I, I, I'm guessing maybe a, a question would be, okay, so what are some of those bright spots? And, and I'd say, I think we, we don't have a good sense of like where the bright spots are and where are the places that we can build on because we just don't look for them. But I think equally important is, is looking at what are the strengths of different communities and, and where are the places that, you know, we really want to be expanding and, and helping to flourish instead of always just looking at what things are broken and in how many different ways can we describe the brokenness of our communities. To me, the term pipeline is a little bit problematic because it connotes an inevitability. Right. So a pipeline sounds like there's only one way in and one way out. Tanya Bransford is a Hennepin County judge with nearly 30 years experience in the juvenile justice system. And there are some children and some people that are very resilient and are able to get out despite their adverse childhood experiences. Getting people out of the system, out of the pipeline, is what Judge Bransford considers her top priority. One of the things that I think makes a difference 
in the justice system is to not have people unnecessarily detained. So we're no longer detaining young people for nonviolent offenses. There's a lot more community-based alternatives available than before because there's been a realization that just sending young people to an out-of-home placement to a correctional facility or a treatment facility or residential treatment center is not the do-all to end-all if there's some way that you can keep them in the community with family and correct that situation it's better part of what we've learned is that it doesn't do that much good say just to quote-unquote treat the young person and not treat the family because they're going to be a part of the family the point is if you can work together with a family unit and get the parents engaged, then that might be helpful. Now, you think that would going to a little bit of the root, but for instance, if you have families, parents that refuse to engage, parents that themselves are dealing with their own chemical dependency and or criminal behavior, it's, it's hard to get to the root. Now, another possibility might be bail reform, because why should we have people in custody just because they weren't able to pay bail and it is pre-trial so they haven't been determined to have committed any offense it hasn't been adjudicated um, but yet they might lose their job they might lose their connection or support in the community and all those things perhaps it's not surprising that when we approach a problem as long-standing far-reaching and complex as systemic racism and we ask people for possible solutions their suggestions are equally complex. They tend to focus on big systemic changes, things like policies and procedures that most of us don't have access to. So I asked Judge Bransford this, what can we do as individuals? Well, the first thing I would say is you have to make sure that you're getting educated. And so it's doing whatever you can do to get educated and to recognize our own biases. The, the second thing I think that anyone can do is now that you're educated, I guess I would say exercise your right to vote. And I know people are focusing on national elections and everything, but those local elections, like who you're putting in your school board, um, those are also vitally important. And then maybe the last thing I would say that every person could do as far as what can I really do to make a difference? Maybe you could volunteer. Maybe you could volunteer um, at a local school and be a mentor to a kid um, really getting involved, whether it's um, through your local school, with your community groups, or individually uh, helping a kid. Let's close this podcast with Tyler Winkleman, our Minneapolis-based physician working in the county jail. I asked him the same question I asked Judge Bransford. What can each of us do? And I found his answer both compelling and potentially very important. I think we need to be humble and realize that, that we don't have the answers, but there are people who have some pretty dang good ideas, and, and often they don't look like me. And I think we need to help raise up those voices, and I think we need to look for opportunities to support their message and their ideas. Clearly, the white male power dynamic has not produced the equality that many people want to see. And so I think if we just keep trying the same thing over and over again, we'll keep getting the same results. <laughs> and, um, and I also think if we just pause <laughs> before we 
start talking about solutions uh, and really just are honest with ourselves that we can make space to elevate people whose ideas need to be heard and have the lived experience that we don't have and to give them the opportunity to lead and for us to play a supporting role in making that change. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. You can subscribe to this series, Health in All Matters, through Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review and a rating. That really does help us reach more people. We particularly want to reach out to young people and their teachers because we believe you are a very important part of the solution. So check out our sample discussion questions for high school and college students. You can find them on our website at sph.umn.edu. Thanks for listening, and take good care of each other.